Hello, everybody. How you doing? My name is Charles Irizarry, CEO and co-founder of Strata AI, and I'm excited to be speaking to two very intelligent people today, Nirmal and Moody, who will be introduced shortly. Uh, uh, quick background on me. My background is in distributed computing and cloud architectures. Uh, I co-founded Strata AI with several partners who are PhDs in applied AI. We do uh, consulting with large enterprises in implementing AI strategies. And today I get to nerd out with two friends I've made. Uh, first, Nirmal, uh, who is a data scientist at VMware, and I want to give him a moment to introduce himself. And then next, I'm going to introduce Moody Hadi. Uh, Nirmal, why don't you take it away for a few minutes? Yeah, thank you, Charles. Uh, yeah, uh, good morning, good evening, uh, or good afternoon, everyone, whoever is in which time zone. Uh, myself, okay. Nirmal, uh, so currently working as a senior data scientist at VMware. Uh, so. Uh, before VMware, I was with uh, Microsoft, uh, and before that with Wells Fargo. Most of my experiences have been on the uh, security domain, uh, working uh, kind of fusion of security and the data science. And uh, thanks for having me today. Awesome, Nirmal. Thank you. And Moody, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Moody Hadi. I run a new product development for S&P Global Market Intelligence. Uh, focus on credit risk and uh, risk management solutions for financial uh, accounts and basically non-financial accounts. So uh, we use a lot of machine learning in our production applications um, and, and you know, a lot of deployment that in the last few years have become more horizontal scaling and, um, and, uh, and elastic basically in demand. So yeah. happy to be here, Charles. Thank you. No, I'm super excited, guys. Um, I hope we get to we get a chance to kind of nerd out a little bit on some of the technologies that you guys gave me a kind of teaser into. Um, and what I want to do is kind of talk a little bit about kind of practical applications that you've either worked recently or currently in your roles. And then towards the end, talk a little bit about kind of future trends and where you see things going. And so with that, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about something that Nirmal and I touched on yesterday. And I would, Moody, I would love to get your opinion on it. Uh, first, uh, Nirmal, thank you for your service, because I understand as you're a veteran of the U.S. Army, I'm very excited to be talking to you. Um, thank you. And kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we touched on, on, on anomaly detection. And I know that that's some of the work that you did at Wells Fargo. Um, and we kind of started talking a little bit about graph databases, how we use graph databases to visualize certain trends and, and anomalies that we want to detect, and then kind of build out those use cases from there. So. At a high level, what kind of fraud detection methods were you guys working on in, in the financial space and kind of the tooling that you were using to, to implement that in production? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, so anomaly detection, you know, especially on the uh, security side, call it kind of the RICS side, you know, like doing the any project related to the fraud space mostly when it comes to the uh, the banking where, where some of the projects I was involved in. So, you know, majority of the time it, it becomes uh, clearly for us that uh, feature engineering can be challenging. So, and the more time we spend on feature engineering, I think it, it, it becomes more productive. I always put it in this way that uh, building ML model is just like the last piece of your meal, which is just a dessert, right? So before you enjoy the dessert, maybe like you want to make sure your whole cooking process or everything went smooth. So that's where the data prep and the feature engineering comes in play. 
one of the mm-hmm. major challenges we we ran into was um, the labeling, right? Like I said, either you could go classification route where you're going to have to struggle with the class imbalance problem. Uh, there's a majority of the data you're going to have is your normal data points. Either you mm-hmm. have to create a strong baseline and then, you know, like you can go anomaly versus not as a binary classification problem. Uh, the challenge there would be you have limited data points and then you're going to be dropping either doing some sort of class imbalance techniques, but eventually you will end up being either losing data or recreating the synthesized data. And both cases, they have some challenges, right? So what we found has been useful was going through the unsupervised route. And that also helps us to detect the novel attacks, right? Some Something we haven't seen in the past. Because supervised way, like you're going to be dependent on the labels from the mm-hmm. data that you have seen in the past, right? So right. Uh, that also kind of sometimes if it is like zero day attacks or it is a new novel attack, then we will miss the model haven't seen it before, right? So uh, the advantage of going on unsupervised route is it may be able to detect those instances. But the challenge is obviously unsupervised. We don't have labels. It's hard to, to how do we evaluate our models, right? Uh, Sure. Uh, and then, like we chat briefly yesterday, uh, the, the relational database has its own limitations sometimes when we do the feature engineering. Uh, you know, we unless we we create keys or composite keys for everything, we cannot identify if someone is sharing the common information from, from the relational database, right? So when we plot things in the graph, uh, we, we can see some of those behavior. Uh, the way we use graph uh, analysis was not as a kind of like just a tool on itself, but it's a complementary tool. Uh, and then we we build the feature engineering from graph. Like like once once you do the graph, then you can mm-hmm. use some out of the box algorithms like community analysis. You know, like uh, betweenness, centrality scores. You know, uh, like page ranking that Google uses heavily. Things like that. So you create additional features, those features you augment with the existing features, and then it helped uh, model performance. So mm-hmm. then in, 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 in short, like we, we tried few things where we initially begin with supervised approach. We identified the problems of <coughs> class imbalance. Then we went to unsupervised route, even in unsupervised route, we thought graph like feature engineering will bring values and we tried that way and uh, we see significant improvements uh, so yeah so definitely for anomaly detections those are some of the areas to to kind of look for you know mm. I, I jumped right into anomaly detection because that's one of my favorite kind of use yeah. cases after it's just a lot of fun and it's applicable in many different uh, areas. Yeah. One of the things that we definitely did when we were working, and this actually ties into kind of some of Moody's work um, a couple of years yeah. back, we were also using Graph to help us do some better um, natural language processing on quarterly public reporting of public companies, specifically the Russell 3000. And mm-hmm. so I remember at the time we were having the toughest time even training the NLP engine to understand kind of the terms in the space. And then when yeah. I had mentioned that to Moody, he started laughing and said, well, you should see what we're doing with simple Chinese. We're trying to do NLP <laughs> uh, uh, analysis with uh, simple Chinese to analyze a lot of the quarterly reports. And I kind of want to tee up Moody on that and say, you know, t- walk us through kind of the challenges and kind of the birth of that idea and how you guys are, are working through that. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, Charles. Thanks. And uh, normally, yeah, no, I can relate very closely to the basic graph theory you're talking yeah. about, and how to traverse basically specific nodes. Uh, in simplified Chinese, what we do is we we have a deep learning neural network that actually was trained with labels, with basically handling a little bit of the imbalance through a series of reviewers who actually went through kind of tests in order to make sure the balancing of the of the training set doesn't get skewed. Um, so yeah, we have like, so, you know, we basically, what we did was we took a corpus of, uh, you know, of first party data that, uh, that is uh, replicated on the ex over the counter exchanges and the A shares. And, uh, we took the chapters out and sectioned them and we had uh, a third party basically label them for us, uh, through shiny, through basically. Uh, an app that we built in, in our studio uh, that they can basically highlight specific sections and specific areas, uh, sorry, specific sentences within the sections and then go through a categorical classification problem. Um, mm. And then that created basically a set that we can um, essentially uh, use as a corpus to train a deep learning neural network with basically a few convolutions and um, long short-term memory basically nodes. Um, with a series of dropouts in order to capture what the company is saying about itself. Because there's a lot of, there's a, generally speaking, in the journalistic world, there's a lot of bias uh, mm -hmm. from information, especially coming out of private companies, uh, frankly, globally, but especially in China. And what we wanted to capture is not that bias. What we wanted to capture is the unbiased piece of basically what they have to disclose for the, what anybody, but especially there, what they have to disclose to the government and how they speak about it. So mm -hmm. we we are actually trying to extract technically, not infer um, what, uh, what the document is saying, what the company is saying about itself. And that has to be ring fence in a series of context sensitive, basically series, uh, which not only includes credit risk, but there are a few basically market risk and financial basically health or capital structure changes or, or business development. So for a series like that, we do have to use uh, supervised learning, right? Yeah. Um, and with a little bit of retraining when, when it has to happen. Um, mm -hmm. On the graph piece, what I would suggest is to look at the meaning of the nodes, because we have other products that basically look at their acyclical graphs that we have to break, break any cyclicality around it. And mm -hmm. things like that, we have to actually understand the relationship between what the node actually inherits. So for example, for us as a chart of accounts with a value that relates from the balance sheet to an income statement to a cash flow. So we look at the number that is inherited by the node and how that relates to basically the other series. You yeah. know, so that, that helps us break basically acyclical, uh, cyclical graphs. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's fantastic, and and I think you made a great point about uh, a lot of information having biases built in, especially for analyzing uh, publicly like published articles. In in some of the challenges that even we teach, we try to teach our students on how to analyze data or structure models so that there's as little bias put in as possible. But then we also traverse back to explainability being able to explain why this is the way it is, why it could be better. And some of those are very big challenges, even internally. And something that I would like to learn from you, Muli, and then I'll, I'll ask you, Nirmal, the same question is, you know, yeah. how, with all the products that you guys are building and with the complexity of this, how do you guys manage that 
that explainability with your leaders right, right. and colleagues in terms of how this works and why this is this is accurate, why this is better. Yeah, sure, Charles. So, so a lot of so you know, being in like financial service for a while, right? A lot of the structural models that we actually operate that have econometric basically uh, meaning to them, and there's a market structure that you apply. The thing you kind of get for free is the sensitivity to individual independent uh, factors, right? So we, right. you know, uh, we all have different models, uh, but at least we understand what the independent factors actually mean and how they relate to the dependent factor. So with ma basically machine learning, we don't have that, right? And, and especially with deep learning neural networks and things like that, right? That random forest, it's kind of hard to kind of convert into, into the same sort of structure. So what we've done is we've pushed out uh, model agnostic explanations Although they're computationally like expensive, they actually give the user the same feeling that they can actually understand. Okay, if I change basically, for example, um, a paragraph or a sentence in a, an article, how much of an impact does it have on the overall polarity? Exactly. Right. So that actually helps us get get folks comfortable with those basically black boxes. Uh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. That's that's fantastic. Um, that's an interesting approach where basically you're just having them kind of dog food the solution. And in our case, we typically start with, well, number one, there's lots of education that we try to give our clients as we go through and then help them defining their initial ontology um, so that they understand kind of how things kind of come together. It's a great way for them to start to understand the concepts. But Nirmal, I'm, I'm super excited to understand kind of how you've handled explainability and, and especially because you're in a space of cybersecurity. So yeah. people are very sensitive about their data, what's happening, what's going on. And then now we're introducing, as as Moody accurately put it, these black boxes that are gonna provide insights and additional value. You know, how, yes. do, how have you handled explainability in VMware? Yeah, so I, I, this is a very good topic. Yeah, I'm glad uh, it came out. Uh, so the model explainability and interoperability, you know, it, it has been a huge thing. And uh, like, like Moody mentioned, uh, as we move to the more advanced models, we lose the explainability, right? So uh, the simple you get, you may <coughs> not see as accurate uh, on your performance metrics, but you, you wanna achieve the high performance or high accuracy, use the complex neural network, or like your use case is something like where you have to use it uh, deep learning, then obviously the challenge becomes how you create a metadata and how you explain to to, to the people that after you, your model make a prediction, right? So. I mean, obviously in the fraud space, if I take the same example from banking, uh, like it's uh, it's kind of like the bank has to explain why they rejected someone's credit card, for example. Like, you know, hey, you swiped it in a different Jeep code. That's one thing. But like then if, if, if someone applies for a credit card and then it got rejected, then you have to explain because these are the factors, these are the variables we looked upon. The, the ML models should be able to explain it. Like, uh, the highest weight weightage was assigned for credit score, for example, then obviously it makes sense, right? Uh, so you have to break it down in that. And all the problems, it, it's hard to break it down like that. There are new, uh, you know, like, I mean, techniques, not not new now, but like techniques like Sapley, uh, Lime, uh, those are a few of the things we looked upon uh, when uh, we were like, hey, we are using that little bit advanced model we have to break it down. How is our, uh, you know, like the linear equation comes down to like when, like off the target variable. 
with the, with the predicting variable and how can we explain it uh, some models uh, if we if we stay close to like uh, sometimes the, my rule of thumb is like if you don't have to use advanced model don't use it right so if you have to your use case suggested then you, i mean you you by means you use it uh, but but usually I suggest people like don't use hammer to break a peanut, right? So I mean you don't have to. You, you can use logistic regression to get away with the classification problem. Then why you bring the uh, DL, right? So so that's some of the things we have to make sure in the industry that like yeah, if if there's a real use case and there's a need, and then your accuracy is obviously like varying by a lot, you know. Uh, and then in some cases you may not have to explain a lot right so i mean you're predicting cat versus dog i mean it doesn't hurt if you if you predict a cat right for for some dogs right i mean that you 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 can take that hit but obviously when you're explaining to customers that your credit card is rejected that's a different scenario right so those yeah, are no, some weighted decisions right so <laughs> so normal there's not a lot of problems that we solve that cat versus dog you know but you know the yes. reason we basically go into uh deep neural yeah. networks is because there are captures a lot of nonlinearities and codependencies that we normally don't create don't capture through a series of logistical regressions yeah right? so, no no i i, I get it so yeah. that's why i said if the use case suggested then you have to use it right so mm -hmm. and in some cases you may not have to explain uh you know like like i was just picking example i i was also working on one project where we didn't have to we, our goal was just dropping the false positive as much as possible, right? So, I mean, our, our primary metric was like lowering the false positive, right? So we didn't even um, like, uh, we didn't even go for accuracy of the model. Like whatever can drop the false positives was, was our true, like because our SOC analyst or the, or the threat hunters were seeing a lot of the false positives. Primary goal is just drop them, right? Regardless, right? So if we confirm it is a false positive, just drop it. So we used, uh, I mean, and in some cases, if you don't have to explain it back, you know, then obviously it makes sense. Yeah. If you have to explain it back, then the packages that I've mentioned has been useful, at, at least in my experience, you know. Uh, but obviously the challenges are there, like like Modi mentioned, and and sometimes we cannot we cannot say hey we we don't want to use it right. You have you have uh, they are they are serving the best right. It's a reason why we have. <laughs> yeah, some places you can you can do unsupervised learning and not need to explain anything right. And and right, like right. A, I think like like what data robot and a few of the unsupervised like the automation space where you have to take it's very clearly what you have to output back right. Right for efficiencies, still human in the loop, but basically efficiencies around it. Then you don't need like model agnostic explanations, and you don't need to actually create a lot um, of. And, and that's kind of a different play in some places. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense, Numa. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, I, and to, I would love to kind of push this conversation further a little bit and talk about um, a lot of times um, what catches even our clients off guard is when we start to explain model drifts and what that means or a drifting of a model. And this is something, Normal that you and I spoke about. Um, and I think, Moody, you and I touched about it. But Normal, in your space, um, do you have model drift? Uh, what what kind of, have you had a challenge to explain what that is and how it works? And and for the audience, for some of us, because I know that some, some of the audience are very new to the space and they're learning, can you explain what drift is? Yeah, yeah, for sure. This is a good topic. Uh, thanks for bringing it up. Uh, so. Initially, when I was obviously in the data science space, uh, the and I, I 
I see that the journey of most of the data scientists is like that, like the, the way that I, I did. We, we focus heavily when we are studying the skills or building skills um, on the model building develop, like, you know, uh, development side, right? So you, you have from uh, the workflow, even in the, at least in the academic level, it only covers from like data processing to uh, model building. Uh, what what goes beyond that is 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 what the industry is right. So I mean, I mean where model building is not the last stage. What I'm trying to see in the in, in the workflow, then comes the the whole dis new discussion. We can it's going to be ML ops side. But when we are deploying the model, there's a critical piece of model deployment which is monitoring, right? So model monitoring, and that's when what you have raised things like the the drift uh, comes in play. The two key concepts I am aware of is the data drift versus the concept drift, right? So data drift is like we we are seeing new data, right? Like every, like depending on how uh, how often, how frequent is your model retraining cycles? Some people may set it up in, based on the use case in a week, in two weeks, in a month, you know. Uh, but how do you decide on that? Like you know, cycle. Sometimes maybe you think that you have enough data to retrain in a week. Sometimes then your data just grew exponentially, and then you got more data, and your model starts behaving a pretty, like, you know, accuracy start degrading. And then that's a data drift because you are seeing new data that you are not expected to see, or there's a drop in the data, some sensor error or something. It affected the model performance, right? So those that is one. So this first checkpoint is to check how data is drifting. The other could be the concept drift where, I mean, the, the, the business case or the initial problem statement that we define when we build the model kind of changes. So in a way that uh, we may have defined the threshold of uh, five being anomaly, five or higher being anomaly, for example. Then our mm -hmm. business case says that, hey, we wanna have higher recall. Let's let's bring the threshold down. So, so we would probably do like three or higher anomaly. We are trying to catch more anomalies than the, uh, you know, good values, right? Or, or like, so, use case may arise like we are seeing more anomalies we we want to lower the uh, and then when we do that the cons like the, the now the way that we are classifying the statement like it changed right so that we have to uh if we and then that is kind of like concept drift way and uh this i i think monitoring of model i i think now the industry is already aware and they are they are using like the cloud vendors like AWS, SageMaker, Azure ML platform, they all have spent so much time on like, you know, how do you have that user friendly or, you know, at least a way for, for us to track uh, how these things drifts and, and then how we monitor the accuracy, how can we take actions, right? And then mm -hmm. obviously the drift will kind of like brings the, uh, sometimes the feedback loop, right? The way we, we set up our feedback loop will, will be helpful to see uh, continuously monitoring the model is what is important, right? So. Sure. And Moody, have you, how do you deal with drift and your team? And I know that you have a pretty extensive yeah. team on the ML ops side. So I would love to get your perspective on this. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll try to tie things together a little bit. So I think, um, like when we, you know, clearly, whether it's structural models or on, or basically, um, you know, um, machine learning models, drift mm -hmm. has sort of been around for a while, right? There is a slight bias. There's actually a bias 
to yeah. uh, over like not necessarily overfitting, but trying to like look at data that actually kind of um, you know what you've seen before kind of tends to kind of react the same way what you see in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the reasons we use sort of uh, machine learning models is uh, they can they they have basically tend to be a low bias, but they can tend to also have a high variance to or high sensitivity to small like movements in the data, right? Whereas a structural model, for example, does not, right? So that trade-off is what we have to monitor as what we call drift, right? Because as basically the world evolves or as the data set comes in that adjusts, your, if you had a structural model, it'll basically completely operate just like how you parametrically fit it. If you yeah. have a machine learning model, it will just switch like crazy and you don't yeah. know why. <laughs> so yeah. that balance is what you're trying to you know, basically control for. And normally what we do is we create challenger models that have basically some form of stability and run them in parallel and see if basically what the, for example, machine learning model did versus structural model. And if the, if the, if the spread between the two changes a lot, then we might want to look at retraining, for example, the model or recalibrating the factors. Yeah. And the fu the funny thing about it is it ties to machine learning operations because, you know, back in the day we didn't have a lot of um, uh, servers. I'm, I'm sure we can all relate here. A lot yeah. of servers and like on-premise, basically boxes that we have um, cost a lot of money. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing about now is like through like Amazon, Google and Microsoft, Azure, like GCP and um, AWS, we're able to create um, a lot of basically cloud computing that can be computationally expensive, but still able to operate without like large like real estate uh, of spaces. So what's interesting is over time, what we realize is, um, you know, we tend to, we, we can have some inefficiencies where we could have basically some notebooks running around here and there that you know we get charged for quite a bit so a lot of the space is trying to figure out how we can kind of compress the cost versus uh you know marginal benefit that you would get right uh, and it's an interesting problem because you know like a few years back you wouldn't think of that as a well like six years back right you wouldn't yeah. think of that as a being a problem right but when you have when you have easy access to kind of create a lot of uh, servers that normally would have taken you time and uh, effort to actually bring together and put together, um, this is uh, this is a kind of an area where we where we're I mean unfortunately we're trying to be efficient about it, but it's not it's not really an easy problem to solve, right? So, yeah. Sorry. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, so. So. I guess. Oh, COVID was one of the best example of concept drift, where uh, a lot of the companies had to change policies, or at least even the the government changed policies, right? And and when those policies comes down uh, to the model label, I mean, I mean, we can have many examples, right? Like like your marketing team trying to predict some sales or whatever, and then your cost of it, like. You go and digitalize your cost going up. There's there's a few examples I was reading blogs and then like uh, someone talk about the, the the correlation of concept drift with with COVID, right? Examples like that where things happen unpredicted and then you have to adjust your model, right? If if you if you are impacted by 
concept changes like that, right? So. Yeah, I think to help illustrate, uh, Normal, because uh, we also have um, a, 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 effectively a boot camp to, to create AI developers and train them. And one of the products that one of our students delivered was trying to do a prediction model of a stock price. And yeah. he explained that COVID was such an anomaly, he could not predict how the stocks would be when COVID hit. But everything else yeah. was pretty good in terms of accuracy, yeah. the concept yeah. of COVID, which, got inter which changed a lot of things, right? And it's not something that... You can't pull that from a data source. Right, uh, it's right. really difficult for him to predict what the what the what the prices of, of stocks would be. Um, right, right. A question I wanted to follow up with Moody on was: um, uh, My accounting team has become very very good at finding waste in our cloud providers, especially all the licensing. Uh, we we had one fun story. We had a developer who ran a query on a client system. The client did not have any limitations set, so the query ended up generating terabytes of information accidentally. Um, what what do you have in place to kind of guard against a lot of either memory leaks or massive accidental queries that get brought out? You know, it's it's not easy, especially when the data scientists are trying to be as productive as possible. But at the same time, as you highlighted, you have to balance kind of resources, expenses. Yeah. How do we how do we manage all this stuff? So, like, it's funny. We have a series of basically uh, systems on the infrastructure side. So, normally, most what we run is on Linux, like we basically Linux based servers. So, with fits in development, test, or staging, we have a series that looks at actually exactly what you said: is how much memory do we use on the box? Right, and if there's something that's like above what the thresholds we set are, then we get alerts, and then folks like myself go in and say, "Hey, we might need to take a look at that now, uh, and and adjust, right? Either scale it up, or you know, or you know what, this shouldn't be running anyway, right? And production yeah. is different. So in production, we have a very strong real-time effort. We're actually very worried about uh, information security. Um, so. Um, when we get from sort of called quality assurance to production, we make sure the containers are have very little number of dependencies. So you know, if you if um, you know if you if you have a lot of dependencies, it tends to go through a source uh, source code check, and you can highlight like you don't really need like 600 dependencies for us for sure. a little package, right? So yeah. you won't be allowed to go to production unless you trim it down. You know, and uh, from an efficiency standpoint, because you've gone through development and testing, um, and we've ran this product basically for a while in those areas, uh, you tend we tend to control how much the memory gets used in production, right? Yeah. Because we know already that this thing has been running for a bit, that when we deploy it, it shouldn't take more than like X number of megabytes or gigabytes, depending on what's going on. Sure. Um, then it's more upgrades. The fun part is like, you know, um, AMI basically upgrades of images, right? So the, the cool thing about cloud computing is because we decoupled uh, this, the code from the OS. Uh, yeah. Back in the day, the code and the OS could be related, if you, especially if you guys, if you were all in C, right? Um, we can actually still upgrade things and patch them when the code can be in an in interpreted or higher level language and still operate on upgrades. But that also can, depending on what kind of dependencies you may have, that can also cause um, issues, right? Like uh, upgrading from one Red Hat version to another 
and you're mm -hmm. using something that was built in say C++ or Fortran, right? Mm -hmm. Could have a dependency on the OS, which by the way, uh, you know, Nirmal, I, I see you laughing, but <laughs> a lot of what I do is, is basically um, optical character recognition. And those, those, those things are actually still in C and in some cases Fortran. Fortran, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, you, you're bringing me back to when I deployed my first PHP server back, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and I had a, a, a severe memory leak in my software. I could not find what it was, and I found out it was my OS, which had a certain version of a function that I was calling, and I was like, Jesus Christ, when it, that's when I really fully realized that it's code <laughs> built upon code, built upon code, built upon assembly languages. So bugs like do a full stack up in that regard. So that, that was a fun time. A wonderful four days of my life that I will never forget. <laughs> Just four days? That's you know, it's not too bad. <laughs> four days of sleepless nights, just kind of thinking like, what, like what could be wrong? And it, against a deadline that you're late on, right? So when you're late, it's it's like forever. It's like time stops. You're late. We gotta get this thing, and you can't process credit cards. Like what's going on? And so it's not dig any deeper because I'll start to have like you know panic attacks. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, as as we um, as we wind towards the end of the conversation, what I would love to talk about is a little bit about the future and kind of what you guys see trends wise. And I kind of want to leave it open for you guys to kind of suggest, you know, where you see both the tech, the technology, and the industry in your particular areas going in terms as as we use you know data science, more tools and ML and deep learning, and and where you think most companies will probably be investing a lot of resources to get better at and. I'll lead by saying that I think uh, the general practice practice of MLOps I think is going to be a big area that most in, most companies are going to start to get mature in. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about this and we're all experts in it, but ultimately there's there's many companies that are not performing at the level of VM and SMP right now, and so what's going to happen is that. I, th I think there's going to be a big trend of data scientists that are going to stop playing with models necessarily locally on their machine and actually start trying to deal with what it means to have a production model in place and dealing with all the things that for us, it's, 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 a, it's a normal day at the office, right? You know, drifting of models, managing memory, ensuring the performance on things, you know, that's just kind of normal for us. So with that said, Nirmal, especially with your experience at, at VMware, where, what, what, is, what do you see in the future? What do you see significant that's worth talking about? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, great topic uh, to kind of end the conversation here. But uh, so, uh, yeah, so what, what I would like to highlight especially is uh, the, the, the skills, right, or, or at least even my talk is is based on like what are the new how to upskill the data science skills right so uh, so I have seen uh, the train that um, especially on the speaking from the security domain where I am at right so uh, the 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 concept before was hey uh, uh, security is a uh, kind of like if you look at it like most companies like when they calculate the risks you know for for someone being hacked or something get, getting attacked is all based on the uh, uh, hypothetical number, right? So until something happens, uh, how 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 justifiable that number is, right? So it's just like we are buying a insurance that 
I mean, tomorrow we may might end up in accident, right? So uh, it may not happen. We're just paying monthly. So most of the companies used to in the past think that security is just a necessary waste, right? I mean, it's it's hard to think in that way because it's 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 necessary. But they are like, okay, we're just spending money. What is the ROI behind it? It's hard for in the security business. But lately, the train is like, okay. Now data has become your asset, right? So I mean, you 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 get hacked today, then it's really hard to get the right value behind your data. But we see in the news that a ransomware has been a new trend. You, they encrypt your data, ask money, right? So uh, so people have started like at least the companies have shifted towards that like there is a value, and. Um, and heuristic based or signature based like learnings is 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 gone past we've gone past that phase so every company's so far i've been on you know like uh, working or at least uh, on my community through linkedin or some conferences i go through the train is uh, people uh, want to go to the machine learning route and uh, sometimes it we have to be careful most companies are kind of using it as a marketing sword uh, like, hey, we have AI in security, right? So, I mean, and how, what are you doing? And until sometimes you realize some of the companies are just marketing and then they're not actually using the AI. They still use the signature-based systems, but maybe in, in a little bit of machine learning sprinkles to it, but it's not a full-blown uh, ML AI systems, right? But they have realized that now it's hard to fight the battle without... Keeping human in the loop is almost impossible. The data exponentially grows. You know, the SOC analyst can go only through so many alerts in a day. We have to have AI in place, right? So there's no choice now. Uh, so going forward, I have seen that, like you mentioned, uh, model deployment on the local instance or, or Jupyter notebook days. Uh, I mean, it has to be how do we productionalize? How do we scale your model? And uh, thinking from big data prospect, obviously, uh, especially in the security data logs, when we talk about logs, obviously, it's, it's going to be humongous, right? So this is a big data of big data, I would say, usually when we work on logs. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and those aspects of so few key things would be like for the model deployment, model scalability, the one that we touched upon, explainability, you know, with where it matters. And then yeah. those things will be the train. And then especially i can talk in behalf of security only and security is going in a good direction which i like about it is like slowly uh, most of the companies are understanding the value behind the ml approaches uh, not only for marketing concept but to do in a right way right so that that's more important so awesome and and to add something before i jump over to moody uh, yeah. a, a good a dear friend of mine who also is in in cybersecurity he he makes a joke that my business is AI versus AI is, is yeah. really what I'm focusing on. So it sounds like that's what you're already contending with. But Moody, yeah. it really sounds like cybersecurity. Yeah. And security, <laughs> I would rather sometimes be on the offense, right? Like I have worked with the red team or people doing the pen testing, you know, I'm like, wow, man, yeah. you guys can, you guys have a lot of fair play, you know, like we are in a defense. We have to get it right every single time. You have yeah. to get in once and you are in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> There's no failures allowed. And then the other side, yeah. you just like, break. If it breaks, it broke. I know. Yeah. The offensive <laughs> side is, is, that's why I've said it's more scary because they yeah. they have the same tools. They have the same AI, like, you know, like capability like we do. And yeah. the, the challenge is, I mean, fighting someone who is disguised and we have to be open, right? Like, I mean, we, 
Um, obviously, we we encrypt, hide our everything, credentials and all. But what I'm saying by open is like a lot of our information is 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 open still. Uh, yeah. That the when we say about setting up the perimeter, we don't know. I mean, where the attackers is coming from, right? So, I mean, yeah. I use, mostly coming from military background, I'd like to break it down <laughs> from the attack perspective. They they are coming around, right? We have all the defense in depth, you know, but the hard part is like, I mean, for, for the defense, it's, it's hard to see, right? And, 100%. Yeah. And with that said, Moody, what's, what's your perspective? No, no, I can relate. I mean, I can kind of relate. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in cybersecurity, I'll tell you. And like, I'm like, Irma, thank you for your service. Like, yeah. you know, it's amazing. Uh, you know, in my area, it's mostly trying to explain uh, what the model is doing to business users, and mm -hmm. typically credit analysts or risk analysts uh, in financial services. Right. So um, in, in that space, I, I kind of I can relate a little bit where uh, the context is quite important. Right. Like that's I think one like little thing that I would point to the data scientists is trying to explain a model without what the context or what the domain specificity is. Is, is a big problem, right? Especially normal, yeah. like you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're an expert in cybersecurity. We, you know, you were talking about socks for a while and took me back too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but you have it naturally, right? Uh, yeah. In my space as well, when we talk to a trade finance person versus basically a trader versus a, a, a treasury analyst, the the, the 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 nomenclature is actually quite important, right? Right, right. So um, I think a lot of data scientists tend to kind of get into the space where they're looking at the model and, uh, you know, playing around with the, you know, precision recall, you know, ROC, AOC, and they forget that actually the business user at the end of the day doesn't really care. They actually right, care right, what right. you're trying to actually explain. So I think that's one piece of it that that's quite important. The other pieces are more related to, um, like I said, interpretable experimentability, especially with these unsupervised learning algorithms and some of the supervised, uh, quite a few of them, is how to explain it in a simple way to the user. Now, I can kind of figure, Nirma, from this discussion that this is less of a problem for you, but a big problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think in, in, when I was in banking, I can relate. Like, yeah, yeah. They, were, they were hammering on the explanatory slide. And I, I can see it because it's hard, like, to break it down on the non-technical words, like how what your model is behaving, you know, why we're predicting it. And you touched upon a good point that it, it is hard. Like no one cares about your PR metrics, ROC curve, yeah. until you explain that what 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 the what business value you are getting out of it, right? So right. and sometimes the data scientists or at least we working on the back uh, in where we build the model is is hard to wear the same hat. Um, that's why product data scientist is becoming popular role, you know, <laughs> have more business <laughs> domain, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Guys, this was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I wish we had more time, but I'm getting flagged on, on the side here. Um, a special thank you to Normal and Moody for, for being here, spending the time out of your day. Normal for coming in so early in the morning on your side <laughs> um, to help us kind of have this conversation. It's, it's exciting to meet peers like yourselves who are so entrenched, who really know and are doing this day to day to be able to just pick your brains, talk a little bit and, and kind of learn from kind of your perspectives on everything that's that's happening. Um, and with that, with that said, and on behalf of the DSS community, I want to say thank you very much. 
Um, uh, Nirmal and Moody, we're going to be sharing your contact information so people can reach out to you, network with you while you're here. And with that said, have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Charles. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks all.